Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. I hope you've been listening to Faith Radio throughout the day. Hopefully you caught Carmen's show. Maybe you just got done listening to Susie's show. Thank you for sticking around. I've got a great hour plan with Dr. Mark Muska. He just returned from 30 days in Florida. And according to his press release by his press agent, and I quote, this retirement thing ain't bad. He is a (laughs) former professor here at the University of Northwestern and asked the professor is the the hour. And so let me know what your questions are. You can send them over via text 877-933-2484. Hello, Mark. How are you, friend? Doing great. How are you doing, Bill? I'm doing really well. Tell me about your your trip to Florida. Oh, it was great. No snow, uh, (laughs) lots of sunshine. Yeah. And... uh, uh, very, very relaxing. Very nice. It's really nice down there this time of year. I love it. And a little bit of uh, walking on the beach, a little bit of sand. We did that, yeah. Sand in the, the toes? Uh, well, the Gulf of Mexico, it's this white sand beaches. It's Ooh. really, really, really nice. That sounds so, fantastic, yeah. It was. It was really fun. Yeah. And I bet it went quickly, didn't it? Yeah, it always does. But that's the way sp- uh, vacations are supposed to be. So you're ready to get back to the grind, you know? Yeah, yeah. I've been thinking about how beautiful and simple the gospel is where i saw this this lovely little two-minute video that alistair Begg did on coming to faith in christ and he was talking about the thief on the cross who gets to heaven and the angels are saying well tell me how you got here and he he goes i don't know but he goes why are you here he goes i don't know and he said, well, let me get my supervisor. And the supervisor you know, starts asking him questions. Well, do you understand the doctrine of salvation? And you understand you got baptized and you know about church membership? And he goes, I don't know about any of that. Yeah. I, I don't even know. It's the man on the middle cross said I could come. Yeah. Boy, that's great. That's really clever, isn't it? It's so simple. Yeah. And I, I just love that story. I thought mm-hmm. it's so profound. I think we complicate uh, life and we, we make coming to faith in Christ we have trouble helping people find that they're lost. We, no. we want people to be found and saved, but we have, I think, a lot of trouble helping them understand they're lost. Yep, yep. I'm, I'm doing some work uh, trying to write something that maybe will turn into an article about the gospel and uh, getting a, a, a lot of the things that you just mentioned there. It seems as though we struggle sometimes with clarity and directness, simplicity uh, with the gospel, and, and uh, we, we tangle it up with uh, metaphors and figures of speech that we don't explain to the person, and it can get kind of fuzzy. And so it's, uh, it's really not rocket science, but sometimes we do. I agree. We sometimes overcomplicate it. Mm-hmm. So yesterday we were chatting about this lovely verse in First John chapter two, yeah. uh, verse two. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Yeah, great verse. Oh, that's such a great verse. And we talked a little bit about atonement yesterday, and it's, it's such mm-hmm. a such a strong uh, word. And I don't know how well people understand it. I'd love for you to put in your two cents on 
atonement and what it means. Yeah, I, I, it's a great word. It's a very powerful Old Testament word. You're going to see it all over the place in the law and in the practices of Israel with their sacrifices, the tabernacle, the temple, that atonement would be made for their sins. And it was all very much uh, regulated for them in the law. Uh, sometimes people struggle reading all of this. Uh, you get stuck in uh, the last part of uh, Exodus and Leviticus, people just about die because they they just don't see why it's so necessary. But that prescribed for these people how they approached a God who was perfect and holy and uh, righteous. They had to have their sin dealt with, and so uh, this word describes that. It's 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 a word that can be understood as forgiveness cleansing, uh, the covering of sin, the taking away of sin. There's a lot of different uh, uh, colorful words that we can use to explain what atonement is. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, uh, set you on your ear a little bit here, uh, Bill, because the translation you're reading, I don't like the way they translate that, actually, in 1 John 2.2. 2, okay. that he, he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Mm-hmm. Uh, the word that's used there, the much more clear direction Direct English word for the word used in First John two two is the word propitiation. Okay, and and I know you've heard that before. Oh yeah, of course. You got to be careful. You don't say that too close to somebody else, or you're spit on them because right. there's too many peas in there. <laughs> but uh, propitiation has the idea of atoning sacrifice is pretty good, but it carries with it the idea that he is the satisfaction for our sins, that he satisfies the wrath of God or the justice of God. Uh, We are, in our natural state as human beings, we are sentenced to death, and it's like we're sitting on death row awaiting our execution Mm -hmm. because of our sin. And when God forgives us through Christ, that wrath of God is satisfied. Does that remind you of any hymns that you've sung? Mm. The wrath of God is satisfied. I love it. The, the justice of God is satisfied so that Jesus paid that penalty in our place as our substitute. And uh, that that's enough to get up and start shouting about. That's really good. Yeah, I like that. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. If you have a question for Ask the Professor... Send it over, 877-933-2484. Mark, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, mm-hmm. um, we in starting in verse 13, it says, Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted wow. in ignorance and unbelief. Yeah, Wow. What a testimony, Oh, huh? Oh, is it ever? And he calls himself a blasphemer. And you always hear that word and you think, ooh, if you blaspheme, you're done. There's no yeah. coming back from that. Yeah. So as, uh, the, the word blasphemy, it's one of those words in Christianity where most Christians know it's something bad, but they don't really understand what it is. So if you ask somebody, is blasphemy bad? They'll go, oh, yeah, it's bad. <laughs> what is yeah. it? I don't know, yeah, but it's bad. But it's bad. Yeah, it's bad. And so to explain blasphemy, I like using an antonym for it, the, the opposite of blasphemy, and that is to bless God or to glorify God. And so when you blaspheme God, when you glorify God, you're lifting him up. You are exalting him. When you blaspheme God, you are dragging him down. 
you are you are insulting him. And so uh, Paul's saying this as many Jews were that uh, they he, he was a persecutor of the church here and a, a aggressor. He was having people thrown in jail as a zealot uh, of a of a I shouldn't say zealot as a, a very zealous. Uh, Pharisee, and uh, that uh, he blasphemed God, specifically Jesus, that he did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God until he had that little experience on the way to Damascus. Mm -hmm. So good. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest, and if you have a question, ask the professor. Send it over, 877-933-2484. Mark, here's a question that just came in. When Jesus was resurrected, he was in his human body. I might say he was in his glorified body, but the question is he was in his human body and ascended into heaven. Is he still in his human body now in heaven? Ooh, that's a good question. And it's one of my most common answers. You know what I'm going to say here, don't you? I don't know. That's exactly what I'm going to say. <laughs> yeah. that it's, uh, it's, uh, I'm not sure. We are not told in any kind of detail, the nature of Jesus' body, his constitution now, after he ascended. There's no question that after he was raised from the dead, he had a physical body. And the way we know that is what happened, uh, Luke records us, uh, for us in Luke 24, last chapter of Luke, where uh, the apostles are, to, are together and uh, Jesus appears. And it says that the door was locked and everything, and he just came in. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so they were terrified. They thought he was a ghost or a spirit. And so he does a couple things, and he says uh, for them, I'm, I'm looking up the exact uh, uh, verses here, and uh, it, it, uh, Jesus says to them that, uh, uh, here, uh, touch me. And see that I am flesh and bone. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bone, but you see that I do. So he was physical. He had a physical body Mm -hmm. after he was raised. And then he says, give me something to eat. Now, I don't think Jesus was hungry. You know, that just doesn't fit. But he's showing again that spirits, non-physical beings don't eat. Okay, mm-hmm. but physical guys they can eat, so it's real good evidence for us that he yeah. had a physical body. He was raised in a new, incorruptible physical body. But then, when he ascended into heaven, did he retain that physical body, or was his body changed into what Paul describes in First Corinthians fifteen, a spiritual body? where he was no longer physical. And honestly, Bill, uh, you're not going to settle that one among biblical scholars. There are some real heavyweights that think that he now has this spiritual body, so heaven isn't a physical place, so he can't have a physical body there, (laughs) and so he must not have this physical body. I tend to respectfully disagree with that because I like to go with what the Bible says until the Bible changes something, I stay with what the Bible says. And so... He was raised clearly with this physical body. He ascended into heaven, and there's not a word that says that his body was somehow transformed from a physical body into a spiritual body. And so if I'm going to make my guess, I'm going to say he still has a physical body. In fact, I'll go a step further, Bill. I think his physical body still bears the wounds of the cross. I think that he still has the holes in his hands and his feet and the place where the spear pierced his side, that even though his body is incorruptible now, I think he wears those wounds of the cross as 
as a perpetual testament to all of us as to how we got there. It's because of his wounds in our place. So uh, would I die for that? Nah, I'm, I'm not going to be too dogmatic mm-hmm. about it. But if I'm going to make guesses about it, that's the direction I go with it. It seems that we get excited about that he can move in and out of rooms without doors opening after he was resurrected. But I go back to he uh, appeared on the water, walking across the water. That seems as spectacular as coming in and out of rooms without opening the door. Yeah, that all that stuff is pretty cool. I mean, I think we would have been shocked to see something like that happen. I, I can't even imagine what those apostles were thinking in that boat. I when, know. When Jesus comes to him on the water there, and Peter had enough chutzpah there to say, if you're really there, <laughs> uh, you know, invite me to come out there with you, and he did. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's really something. So Jesus did some mighty powerful stuff before his death and resurrection as well, as far as some of those miraculous appearings and sightings and that. And Mark, if I remember correctly, when he walked out on the water to the boat, it, there was a storm brewing, and it was in the evening. So yeah. I'm thinking, yeah, a, a dark in the dark of night, there's a, a man walking on water towards the boat. I'd be pretty freaked out myself. It would definitely get your attention, yeah. wouldn't it? Yeah, we yeah. would. All right, mm-hmm. Dr. Mark Musk is my guest for the full hour, so let me know what questions you would like to ask the professor. 877 love for you to share your story about why you love Faith Radio and what has Faith Radio changed the way you think about something or even how you live. We want to hear from you. Your story can encourage others and glorify God. Share what you love about Faith Radio by calling 877-933-2484 and leaving a message today. Welcome back to the show. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. And if you have a question for the professor, let me know what it is. 877-933-2484. So, Mark, I'm I'm back on this boat issue and Jesus walking on water and other other experiences that happen in boating. And so when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake and they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark. Jesus had not yet joined them. Right. But it goes on to say that the next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite side of the lake realized that only one boat had gone there and that Jesus had not entered it. So mm-hmm. they were factual. They said, no, no, no. He was not on that boat that went over there. Right. So once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor the disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of him. So they finally realized that uh, he's not around, so they went looking for him. Yep. And they found him on the other side of the lake, and they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? (laughs) (laughs) It's such a great question. Yep. And I find his his answer kind of interesting. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs Ooh. I performed, 
but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Mm-hmm. So in other words, you got your belly filled. Right. He was popular. He fed them. Yes. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Yeah. For yeah. on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the work God requires? Jesus answered, I love this, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Yeah. Full stop. Good? Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. And that's where he gets into the thing, too. John records it with, he says, I am the bread of life that has come down from heaven. You, Our forefathers ate manna in the wilderness, but now I am bringing something greater to you. So mm-hmm. really, really good. How are you willing to go into uh, Genesis here? Uh, okay. question is, I've been reading the book of Genesis and the story of Jacob, Leah, Rebecca, and the servants regarding all the children seems so sinful and conflicting. Where does all the behavior fit into trusting God? And I wonder what God thinks of all of that. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what uh, the caller is uh, referencing there. I'm going to go with the first part with the whole business with Rebecca and Jacob and Esau. And then uh, he, uh, Jacob gets married. uh, uh, (coughs) Excuse me. But in uh, Genesis 27, this is where uh, Jacob and Rebekah really deceive Rebekah's husband, Isaac. And uh, uh, this sometimes is seen as, boy, you know, th- did they trust the Lord here? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it sounds like they're taking things into their own hands. And, you know, that's not a bad critique of this, that uh, Rebekah was told that uh, when she was pregnant with Jacob and Esau. She was the mother of Jacob and Esau. And when she was pregnant with them, uh, God told her that the, the, the older of the children would serve the younger. She had these twins, and Esau was the older one, and Jacob the younger one. And so uh, we flip forward to chapter 27. Esau isn't going to live much longer, and he wants to pass his blessing on to his son. And he wants to pass it on to Esau because he's the firstborn. And uh, Rebecca knows that, uh, wait a minute here, uh, uh, Jacob is the one that's going to be the one blessed. And so uh, many people are familiar with this story, how they deceive Esau. Uh, Rebecca has uh, Jacob uh, dress up and feel and and look like Esau and uh, uh, and, uh, the the father there, uh, his is um is too blind to be able to see Isaac uh, that it isn't Esau but it's his son Jacob and he uh, through uh, through deceitful means uh Isaac gets the blessing that uh, I'm sorry uh, Jacob gets the blessing that was intended for Esau from Isaac and this causes a rift between them where Esau is ready to kill Jacob because of that and so wait you know they deceived Isaac here, uh, why didn't they live by faith and trust God that that promise was going to be true, that Jacob would be the one that would be the leader and Esau would follow him? And that's pretty good uh, uh, critique. I think it's a fair critique that Rebecca and Jacob should have trusted God and not taken things into their own hands by deceiving 
Isaac and getting this blessing in this kind of a way. Uh, it, it would have been easy enough for Rebecca and Jacob to appeal to Isaac that God had spoken to them, and Isaac was supposed to bless Jacob and not Esau. You got to remember, Isaac himself is the answer to some pretty supernatural left turning by God when Abraham was ready to sacrifice him in Genesis 22, but then God stopped him, and and Abraham sacrificed a ram instead of his only son, Isaac. So if Isaac would have heard that God spoke to Rebekah about Jacob, he would have been open to that. She should have gone by faith with that, more or less. Uh, that's what we can in, uh, infer from this, but she didn't do that, and it complicated her life, and it complicated Jacob's life. Uh, his brother was out to kill him. Uh, he uh, was uh, forced into leaving his home and not seeing his mother and father again and uh, living with his uncle Laban, who was uh, just as deceitful as he was. It it, it complicated his life. He yeah. still had this blessing that the blessing still went through Jacob, renamed Israel with his 12 sons and that. But uh, this is the wisdom of the Old Testament that if you, if you do foolish things, you're going to complicate your life needlessly. If you do the wise thing, your life will tend to be easier. It will tend to be smoother. You won't complicate it like this. And I think it's a great illustration of it here. Mm-hmm. Mark, how do you navigate uh, spiritual, I, I don't know if I want to use this word, uh, things that sound kind of nonsensical? Because people say a lot of things that are very nonsensical because they have their own idea of what God is. They don't study scripture, they just make it up. So yeah. it sounds really silly uh, to someone who understands the God of the Bible. Yeah. But how do, you, how do you navigate through those discussions? I mean, I, I had some funerals I've been to lately. And, mm. you know, when a person outside of God's family dies and, and you see the obituary and, and they say grandiose things about, you know, the golf course they're on right now and, um, you know, the fact the bar's open in heaven and, and you think, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of wishful thinking, Bill. I and know. I, I honestly, I think that we have to try to look for the positive in that as much as we can. If somebody's talking about being with God like that, uh, I start by saying, well, at least they're interested in God. <laughs> yeah, good point. It's not like they're saying, well, you know, uh, when I die, I just go into the ground and I'm worm food and that's it. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, I cease to exist. Uh, if they're at least thinking about God, you can talk to them and say, really, you know, where do you get that from? Uh, have you ever thought about this more? And, and you know, draw them and lead them into a, an understanding of who you know God to be from the scriptures uh, without just, you know, slamming the person right. and and uh, making them feel stupid for the way they talk. Uh, the, there's all kinds of stupidity out there. Bill, to be honest with you, <laughs> yeah. I say some awfully stupid things at times too. And so uh, let's just join the club here I, with I get saying it. dumb things. I, I but, get you're not going to draw somebody by yeah. rebuking them from, for that. What? So if there's a way to lead them and yeah. draw them toward the truth of the, of the scriptures, I think that's a, a great path to get on. I love it. What I'm hearing you say, Mark Mosca, is seize the opportunity. And I think that's, I think that's the point you made. All right, we'll take a little break. We'll be right back with Dr. Sure. Mark Mosca. Ask the professor, one of my favorite hours here. Let me know what your question is, 877 
questions now's a good hour to let me know what they are i will ask dr mark muska we'll call this ask the professor mark is a i'm not going to use the word retired because i know you're still busy I'm doing a lot still of, kicking still kicking so yeah. but for 37 years you taught here at the university of northwestern and then uh, moved to sioux falls so um we miss you terribly because i don't get to see your face that yeah. often but i i love talking to you on um, on this show. Next best thing. It's the next best thing. So here's a question that comes in, and this pops up kind of from time to time. So I address it as often as it, is, as it shows up, and is speaking in tongues for our time? And is this, and is it a foreign language that requires an interpreter? Yeah, really good questions. And uh, you're not going to have Bible-believing Christians agree on that one, Bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, there's been a history of this for about the last 100, 120, 130 years or so uh, between uh, what you might call uh, traditionalists and then uh, renewal people, where uh, Pentecostals, uh, those in the charismatic renewal, uh, the uh, vineyard movement, uh, they are, they've opened the door to saying that, yes, this gift of tongues is something that still may be active today. Mm-hmm. What is tongues? Tongues is a fancy word for languages, so that uh, we even use this metaphor today. Uh, if you talk to someone who comes, uh, who's an immigrant to the United States, sometimes you'll ask them, well, what, what is your native tongue? And yeah. you're asking them, what's your native language? So uh, tongue language, pretty much equivalent. But the way that it's used in the scriptures, it appears to be a language that is known. It's a known language somewhere, and it can be interpreted by someone. In fact, that's another gift of the Holy Spirit called the interpretation of tongues. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Paul gives very specific directions for the use of these spiritual gifts, including tongues, in 1 Corinthians 14, where he says, you gather as a church, uh, come and have have someone with a tongue, one or two, but then speak one at a time, don't be all speaking at once, one at a time, and then interpret. And if there is no interpreter, let the one who's speaking in tongues keep silent. And mm. so it seems as though he's arguing there for order in the church and not chaos. Yeah. And so uh, this is something that the early church experienced. Uh, The question comes, though, after a very long hiatus through about 18 centuries or so, is this gift of tongue, has has it been uh, uh, stirred up again in the 20th and the 21st century? And there are many, many testimonials of people who have uh, witnessed this, where someone speaks a language that they don't know, and the person witnessing this does know the language, and they're able to interpret it. And so it appears as though the possibility is there for this this gift being active again in the church. But then uh, what complicates it, Bill, is that there are so many claims of this gift of tongues being active that don't pass the test of genuineness from what the New Testament talks about that it confuses people. So that the, there's uh, experiences and phenomena that uh, don't make sense and they aren't interpreted and yet people are saying this is something that the Holy Spirit has given me as a gift. And so it's really stirred the pot in the last hundred years or so among Bible-believing Christians trying to trying to sort all of that out. 
Mm-hmm. And so it's really difficult for me just to come down, you know, straight from Sinai to you here this afternoon and say, <laughs> you know, there's no such thing as the gift of tongues mm-hmm. today in the church. I don't know if I can say that. But yet at the same time, I would say anyone who is claiming this, it has to it has to pass the tests of Scripture. I have my own tests as well with tongues and with any other gift that uh, any gift that is claim to be used, uh, genuine usage of this gift in the church today, it has to answer three questions in the positive. Yes. First question is, does this glorify God? Yes. Does this build up or strengthen the church in some way? Yes. Does it lead non-Christians closer to faith in the gospel? If you can say yes to those three questions, I'm open to it. But that doesn't mean I'm just going to gobble down anything that comes along. All I right? like, yeah, I like that. So I, I like using this idea of cautious openness okay. to the activity of all the gifts, uh, prophecy, healings, uh, works of power, uh, discernment, all these gifts that are described by Paul in his letters. Yeah. Well, you're a reasonable man, Mark Muska. Well... I think we have to stay with the scripture as much as we can and yet be open to what what's going on yeah. around us. So. Yeah. All right. If you truly repent of your sins, will you not be judged on judgment day and be sent straight to heaven? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a great question. There's great comfort and encouragement that we take from putting our faith in the gospel and repenting and turning from our former way of life. And Jesus has got some beauties for this to reassure us. Uh, one that we looked up during the break that's just one of my favorites is John five twenty four, where Jesus is fo- uh, speaking to his followers, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. doesn't say will have. It says has. And does not come into judgment but is passed out of death into life. So I take that with great assurance, Bill, that when that day comes, when we stand before God, we, I don't know about you, I'm i am going to be holding up this verse as my assurance that I will, uh, I will pass the test, so to speak, if you want to call it that. Yeah. And yet there still seems to be a judgment that comes for believers as far as judging what we've done to serve the Lord uh, during our lives here on earth. And Paul maybe uh, unpacks this the best of anyone in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, verses uh, 10 uh, through, uh, let's see here, uh, 10 through 15. Uh, let me just read it for you. It sounds like the work that we have done for God as followers of Christ, it we will be evaluated and we will be rewarded for our good service to the Lord. This is Paul, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10. He says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation for the church, and another is building on it. But each one must be careful how he builds on that foundation. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. 
If anyone's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Hmm. So that seems to dovetail nicely there with John uh, 5.24, that we will be saved, but some will receive rewards, uh, greater rewards than others when we stand before God and our work for the kingdom is evaluated. Hmm. All right, Mark, this discussion is bringing my mind back to 1 John chapter 2, where we started our discussion today. And I'm thinking, I'm trying to put myself in this audience where I'm hearing these words. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Yep. Right there I'm going, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. You know, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Yep. Uh, So I think it sounds that he is trying to be uh, tender and firm that not only we're children of God, but we must not sin. And I don't know, have we gotten more casual with the idea of sin? Sometimes. Okay. Yeah. This is a tightrope that we are challenged to walk and we can fall off on both sides of this thing that I love it. John, he's just a realist here. He says, I write these things so that you may not sin. He doesn't want any of us to sin, and none of us should want to sin. Who would want to sin and displease the Savior who bled and died for us? That's just incongruent, you know? It doesn't work. If you truly love Jesus, you wish to please him. And John gets into that in this letter in pretty good detail, that because you love God and Jesus, you will obey him, and you seek not to sin. So I hope every follower of Christ listening to me right now wakes up in the morning and says, I desire to live a day that today that pleases the Lord in every way and that I won't sin. That's the first part of that verse, I think. He's writing these things so that we have that attitude, so we don't sin, all right? Mm-hmm. But then the realism is, he says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So on the one hand, Bill, we live and we strive to please God with everything that we do and not to sin, and yet, if we do, there's forgiveness available through our advocate, Jesus Christ. So mm-hmm. that's one side of it. We desire to live for Christ in all sincerity. But on the other hand, you can get into trouble if you say, well, this advocate is there, so I can go out and sin all I want. Well, why would you want to do that? Exactly. That that just is so in, incongruent with your love for the Lord. Do you love the Lord? And, and if you say you do, you desire to please him. You don't desire to get away with as much as you can <laughs> so and true. still kind of wash up on the shores of heaven like driftwood. You, mm-hmm. know? you, you want to please God with your life, and that's what motivates you to live a life that— that pleases God. And yet we're realistic enough to realize, but we're still going to stumble and fall. And we're going to have our times where we struggle against temptation and sin. And so we don't beat ourselves for that. We we thankfully accept the grace of God through Christ. And yet we still strive to please him in everything we do. Can people do that? I, I don't think that's that hard if we just avoid those two mistakes there mm-hmm. of somehow to get too comfortable 
with just sinning and then confessing it right. or set up some kind of terrible legalism where we think that we're just junk and have no worth to God if we ever sin. Uh, that just doesn't fit. So uh, John, 1 John 2, 1 is a beauty of a verse. Mm-hmm. All right. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, mm-hmm. it says, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, and the idolaters, and all liars. They will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Mm-hmm. So, the question is, from a listener, will believers lose their salvation if they lie, like in Revelation 21.8 said? Yeah. This is... Uh... Uh, this th- this will get your knees knocking when you start thinking about these things. And any true follower of Christ who desires to please God, they're going to take this very seriously, what's said here. But remember, this is John summarizing what he sees after the judgment, and now the new heavens and new earth are being presented to him in this vision. And he's talking about those who will inherit this with the new heavens and new earth, with Jesus and the Father. And it's those who are not these things, idolaters, sorcerers, persons. And also, he says, and all liars. This isn't, that doesn't disqualify us if we ever say a lie, but if it's a practice of lying without any kind of repentance or remorse or looking to Jesus for forgiveness for it, that, uh, that there's a big difference between those two things. And mm-hmm. so... Uh, we, uh, I don't think this is meant to make us cower over any little sin we do. I mean, this gets back to that First John 2 again about uh, being too hard on ourselves uh, in our desire to please Jesus. We have to recognize all of us are going to are, have uh, struggles, uh, one struggle or another. Uh, I don't know if you've uh, seen the, all the writing that's been going on about this movie that's come out that's called The Jesus Revolution. Yeah. Uh, that this is, it's uh, really quite good. It, it, it describes uh, the revivals that took place uh, in Southern California back in the 1970s. Uh, but one of the main people in that was an evangelist that was a hippie by the name of Lonnie Frisbee. And Lonnie was a walking, talking gospel presentation. He led hundreds, maybe thousands of people to faith in the gospel during that period of time. But Lonnie struggled so deeply with certain sins in his life at the same time. Mm. And that just it's just a portrayal of what it, what it is for all of us not to excuse that sin no way am i ever going to excuse it but i'm not going to hold that over him to say that he's disqualified now and all this that he did to serve the lord is is false or something like that uh, I think it was uh, uh, Chuck Smith who spoke at Lonnie Frisbee's uh, funeral, and he said, Lonnie Frisbee, the biblical character that he re- uh, reminds me of is Samson. Oh, wow. Where he had this great strength, and he did so much mighty work for God, and yet he was terribly flawed. Mm. And it cost him his life, and uh, his eyesight first, and then his, his life. And so uh, that uh, we, have to, we have to somehow be able to hold both of those ideas in our hands at the same time and not overemphasize one over the other. I don't know if that's making sense, but it's that just, makes a, a lot of sense. Yeah. It's, it's just tricky to, yeah. to get that right. All right, Mark, I'm going to let you go to break. Rosie and I are going to answer a quick question 
real fast that came in before we go to our official break, and that was this. What does your song say is for dinner? <laughs> it's that bottom of the hour song. Yeah. And all I'm saying is uh, the song is saying, are you, are you just jumping in your car? Right. And, and if you're jumping in your car, you're having thoughts like, hey, what's for dinner? Exactly. And you're tuning into the afternoon show. I know. And, and you're thinking, do I have to stop at a, a drive-thru so I, can, so I can listen longer? Exactly. Because I'm in my car? Exactly. Right? I'm not getting out of my car until exactly. the afternoon show is over. I All love right. that song. Let me know if you have a question for Dr. Mark Muska, 877-933-2484. Be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome back. We're with Dr. Mark Muska. Ask the professor. Here's a question, Mark. I think we can cover this quickly. Sure. Uh, this l- listener is reading through the Bible in a year and coming across some things that are really confusing, like why was the length of purification for a woman after delivering a baby girl twice that if she'd had a baby boy? And secondly, why was the worth of a female slave half that of a male? Mm-hmm. She's just saying, help me understand, because I trust that God wouldn't just pick on us ladies. Yeah, and I appreciate that. Uh, that there's, uh, as far as that first question about the days of purification, I, I'm not sure. I don't okay. think that's explained for us in the Bible. Uh, I'm guessing with the second one that the male slave was probably able to do much more productive heavy labor mm-hmm. than the female slave. But uh, I'm just guessing at that one, too. If I remember right, it is just not explained to us. Uh, I really hope, though, that the men and women that follow Christ and love Jesus, they they don't uh, uh, get uh, sidetracked and off the tracks in thinking that somehow the Bible is uh, chauvinistic or that women don't mean anything. Uh, there's plenty of things that we can point to in the scriptures that show that the men and women uh, are are just, uh, they are equal in value and stature and in worth before God. There is no preference there between men and women. In fact, you might as well cover everything there. Men and women, uh, between uh, ethnic groups and racial groups, uh, that we are all one, especially in Christ. We are all one in Christ, but we all bear the image of God, male and female, Genesis 128 Mm -hmm. tells us. And so, uh, in fact, I think Jesus is a great example for us of exalting women during his time on earth, that he had women in really important roles in his life that uh, uh, sometimes we don't pick up on. And so uh, there's, uh, I think it's a it's a false trail to get off on to say somehow that uh, the Bible is sexist or something like that. Mm-hmm. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. Mark, there was an event in Jesus's life in which his appearance was radiantly transformed. We call that the transfiguration. What was the purpose of Christ's transfiguration? 
Ooh, I don't know if it's ever explained to yeah. us, so I'm going to be real hesitant okay. to try to uh, uh, explain that. I think there's possibilities for why he did this. Remember, he went up on this mountain, and he uh, had Peter, James, and John with him uh, during this time. And so it may be that he wants them to see the witness of who he is in his glory, uh, that Paul talks about uh, Jesus when he took on a human nature and became a man, that that glory was veiled or it was it was shielded uh, the, the full glory of God that he has as the second person of the Trinity and it appears as though in that time of transfiguration he pulled back the 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 the, uh, the the folds over him and they were able to see him for who he was as the Son of God and it's pretty cool too that Moses and Elijah there appeared with them as well and uh, uh, Peter James and John are absolutely dumbfounded by that. It's one of my favorite things I remember when I don't know what to say when the the text of scripture says Peter not knowing what to say said, you know, and he's 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 dumbfounded. He he doesn't know uh, because of the glory of what he's seen. But the purpose of it uh, it's to uh, make a demonstration of who he is. That's that's I think what's going on there. Mhm. Mark, I don't know how much you know about other religions. Um I know you keep your your mind focused on God's word. But this question came in about Jehovah's Witnesses, and they say that Satan was cast out of heaven in 1914. If this is true, then how did Satan tempt Adam and Eve? And is there any significance to the year 1914 and how end times prophecy seems to be ramping up for the next hundred years or so? Yeah, but I, I'm, that's out of my league there as far as 1914. Yeah, I'm not sure where they're getting that from. Uh, if that is that it is true, we can make a case. It's possible based on a couple of Old Testament prophecies to uh, to uh, understand the idea that Satan or the devil is a fallen angel and that he fell from God's presence and from uh, heaven uh, when he sinned. Uh, The two passages, uh, we don't have time to look at them in detail, but the two passages that uh, may speak of this, uh, they're in figurative language, so we've got to be careful to be too decisive about it. But in Isaiah 14, it talks about this son of the morning that was cast down from heaven because he tried to make himself like God. I I will become like God, but no, he's cast down. In fact, that whole idea of the son of the dawn or son of the morning, uh, that's where we get uh, the word Lucifer from. Uh, that's what that word means, a son of the morning or son of the dawn. And so Isaiah 14 might be describing the fall of Satan. And then the second passage is in Ezekiel 28, where there's a prophecy given that talks about this covering cherub that was cast down from heaven. And a cherub is one of the cherubim. And we know that the cherubim were a classification of, they are a classification of angels in heaven. And so it may be that this fallen angel, Satan, or the devil is the, a fallen cherub who sinned through his pride and his vanity and was cast out of heaven. So uh, we can go that far, but I'm not so sure about this with 1914 and what's going on there. Okay. Let me finish this hour how I started by asking you about your trip to Florida that you spent 
uh, a nice chunk of time relaxing. Yeah. All right, so you step out of your schedule, you step out of your daily routine, and now you're just enjoying a month uh, with your wife in Florida. Where did your mind go in terms of God's Word? What, did you spend time in a specific book? Did you spend more time contemplating, praying, reading? What did you do? Uh, it wasn't so much uh, the time in the scripture. It just it was wonderful because uh, well, my wife and I had a chance to stay with her sister for a while, and she the two bo- the two sisters went off and left me by myself <laughs> uh, for about okay. three days. Okay. But, uh, but I loved it. It was just me and the dog Amos, okay. and uh, but that gave me time to think. And uh, it's more of evaluating where I am in my life and where I want to go. Sure. And things that have to change, uh, changes that have to be made in retirement, and I'm I'm just I'm trying to grow into the role, Bill, and it's not easy. I bet after being so busy for so many years, yeah. but there's still things to do, and I'm hoping usefulness in these retirement years. I'm not going to be real happy sitting in a rocking chair, or even worse, going out and playing golf every day. Uh, not to slam golfers, but right. uh, to just be doing that continually and not doing much more, I, that's not for me. Uh, and so it was really good time good. to be able to disconnect, not have much responsibilities at all, and to be able to think. Yeah, I love that. Mark, thank you so much. Always great to have you on the program um, and always great to hear your voice. So thank you for both. You bet. It's been great to be with you, Bill. God bless you. All right. Dr. Mark Muska has been my guest in this full hour of answering questions. So if you missed any of it, there were some really good questions asked, like there always is when we have asked the professor or guide talk or we look for questions. They are always great. So we're going to take a little break and then we'll be right back with hour two. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.